Hey folks, you guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion, it's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com haunted. That's masterclass.com haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com haunted. I'll see you there. I've said time and time again on this podcast how I grew up on Staten Island, known as the Forgotten Borough. Queens has the Mets, the Bronx has the Yankees, and it's the only borough that you put the word the in front of. I always found that odd. Sinatra sang about Manhattan. The city of dreams. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And Brooklyn? Brooklyn has it all. Staten Island is often overlooked. Unless you're looking for ghost stories. The place is loaded with them. From the Bedell Avenue ghost, the conference house, and Vanderbilt's tomb. All of them rich with their own history and folklore. One of my favorites was about the old Seaview Sanitarium or as myself and the rest of Staten Island calls it, the Seaview Homes. A group of abandoned hospitals that were used in the 1930s to treat tuberculosis. As a teenager, having acres of abandoned buildings just a short ride away was like a magnet for fans of the strange. It wasn't so much the buildings that drew me and my buddies to wander these long-forgotten places. It was the rumored tunnels underneath. On Staten Island... The urban legend of Cropsy has always kept children close to home and inside at night. A common myth, Cropsy was said to be an escaped mental patient with homicidal tendencies and a hook for a hand. The rumor goes that if you strayed too far from home or wandered off on your own, Cropsy would get you from the shadows and drag you into the tunnels underneath of the abandoned Seaview Hospital, where you were never to be seen again. Parents always told their children about Cropsy in hopes that they would be frightened enough to stay close to home. In reality, Cropsy was just a harmless story. But in the 70s and 80s, Cropsy turned out to be terrifyingly real. An actual homicidal lunatic was terrorizing the children in Staten Island, eventually found out to be a local drifter named Andre Rand. Rand, who was born Frank Ruchan, was not a very peculiar child. He lived a seemingly normal life growing up on Staten Island. Contrary to popular belief, 
he apparently had no instances of childhood trauma, according to his sister at least. His father had died when he was 14 years old, and his mother was admitted to a psychiatric hospital, where he and his sister would commonly visit her. As an adult, Rand started seeming more peculiar and strange, becoming a drifter of sorts. He began to commit strange crimes, at one point picking up an unlawful imprisonment charge. He had picked up a bus of 11 children from a local YMCA, where he then purchased food for them. After this, he drove them to Newark International Airport in Newark, New Jersey, where he was apprehended by law enforcement. None of the children were harmed, and he was sent to jail. This occurred after his sexual assault against the child charge in 1969, and his suspected involvement in five-year-old Alice Perea's disappearance in 1972. He was already becoming a notorious suspect in the New York City borough, but more information would soon come to light. In 1981, Rand abducted Holly Ann Hughes while she was on her way to the store. She was never seen again. Several eyewitnesses reported seeing them together, and he was the prime suspect in the investigation. In 1983, Tyahese Jackson's parents reported her missing after not returning home from running an errand as well. Things started escalating further when Rand was accused of the disappearance of 22-year-old Hank Gaffario in 1984. Gaffario was a local resident who was seen as slow and easily manipulated. He was last seen in a diner with Rand. Rand's string of criminal activity came to an end with the kidnapping and murder of 12-year-old Jennifer Schweiger. Schweiger, a local child who was diagnosed with Down syndrome, had been reported as missing on July 9, 1987. Eyewitnesses spotted Schweiger walking with Rand just before her disappearance. After a police investigation, Schweiger's body was recovered buried underground after a 35-day search. While searching for clues near the crime scene, police discovered a makeshift campsite occupied by Rand, where he was detained. In 1988, Rand was charged with first-degree kidnapping of Jennifer Schweiger, although prosecutors couldn't secure a murder charge. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. In 2004, he was again brought to trial and charged with the kidnapping of Holly Ann Hughes. He was sentenced to another 25 years in prison. He will be eligible for parole in 2037 at the age of 93. During interviews, Rand commonly compared himself to Ted Bundy, proudly calling himself the Boogeyman of Staten Island, or a name he's equally proud of, Cropsy. Looking back, you wouldn't catch me dead in a place like that today. Not unless you killed me off sight and dragged my remains onto the property. And there would probably still be some kicking and screaming going on. But as a kid, I needed to know if those tunnels were real. My buddies and I planned it all out. One of our older friends had just gotten their license and he convinced his parents to borrow their car. Let this be a lesson to all of you out there who have kids who drive. Don't let them borrow your car. They may be out there acting like they're in an episode of Scooby-Doo. We loaded up the car with flashlights, rope, crowbars, pocket knives for protection. Protection from what? Couldn't tell you. I don't think you could stab ghosts. And an extension ladder. The rumors just weren't about the underground tunnels. They were also about how deep the tunnels went. Now, rumors go how rumors go. And people can't help but talk about things like this. But we had heard from people who knew people who've claimed to have climbed down flights and flights of stairs and never reached the bottom. Hence the need for the ladder. 
This required way too much preparation, if I'm being honest. Who the hell did I think I was, Egon Spengler? Another small hurdle to get over, besides the endless amount of supplies we brought with us, was the house across the street. Everyone who entered Seaview entered on the same street. It was a small dead end off the main road. It was tree-lined and dark even on the brightest afternoons. It also had a tree with a thick branch that sat on top of the razor-wired fence that you could step up onto the guardrail that lined the side of the street, hook yourself onto the branch, and get over the fence with no issue. You just had to watch the house at the corner. An elderly couple who, in hindsight, were probably just trying to save the lives of the idiot's kids who could have killed themselves exploring abandoned buildings. If they spotted you, they would call the police and raise hell outside, notifying anyone within earshot that you were up to no good. You would literally have to case the house, drive past a few times to make sure that nobody was outside or sitting at a window before you could make your move. Once the coast was clear, you had to make haste, which was not in this husky teenager's vocabulary. Once you fired yourself and all your supplies over that fence, you were in a different world, a world long forgotten. The buildings were loaded with old hospital gear, beds, wheelchairs, the works. You'd get graffiti everywhere, most of it profanity, but you get the occasional 666 or pentagram adding to the atmosphere of the place. I know you're all asking yourselves, did you find the tunnels? And the answer is yes and no. After exploring a majority of the buildings, there were over 30 of them in the area of almost 100 acres, we found one with stairs that led to a basement. Once in that basement, we found more stairs going down. We made our way down about three and a half flights before the stairs ahead of us collapsed. We dangled the ladder but couldn't get solid footing and decided to end our journey there. I know, pretty anticlimactic. But it made you think. Why did that building go down so deep? They said the tunnels were used to transfer patients from site to site to reduce the risk of infection. But why build down so many stories? Life kind of went on from there and we never ventured back. I think we all secretly had our fill. The feeling of dread in that place was thick in the air and the whole time we felt like we were being watched. Something we didn't discuss until after we left. I'm getting chills right now talking about this. I'll never forget that. I never forgot about the elderly couple across the street either. It makes you wonder, were they just doing the neighborly thing of looking out for the neighborhood kids, making sure no one went in there and got hurt? Or did they know what was in there? and they wanted to make sure that it didn't get out. It's this idea that sets up today's story. But before I get to that, I'd like to talk what's arguably the most famous of the supposedly haunted sanitariums. Louisville, Kentucky is home to Waverly Hills Sanitarium, which many believe is one of the most haunted places on Earth. While the building now is primarily a tourist attraction, it used to be a functioning tuberculosis hospital. In 1910, when the hospital was established, this was the place where roughly 8,000 people died bloody, excruciating deaths, as there would be no real cure for tuberculosis, known as the White Plague, until streptomycin was invented in 1943. With all that suffering, it's not surprising that rumors of creepy doppelgangers, ghostly children, demonic forces, and more have cropped up. It's one of the most famous Kentucky ghost stories, and the haunted Waverly Hills Sanitarium is known worldwide. While spooky stories like this can't truly be proven, there are plenty of people who will swear on their lives that they are true. Haunted sanitariums are scary, but the spooky stories from Waverly Hills 
are downright terrifying. During the 18 and early 1900s, America was ravaged by a deadly disease. This terrifying and very contagious plague, for which no cure existed, claimed entire families and sometimes entire towns. In 1900, Louisville, Kentucky had the highest tuberculosis death rate in America. Built on low swampland, the area was a perfect breeding ground for disease. And in 1910, a hospital was constructed on a windswept hill in southern Jefferson County that had been designed to combat this horrific disease. The disease continued to run rampant through the region, and eventually, with donations of money and land, a new hospital was started in 1924. The new structure, known as Waverly Hills, opened two years later in 1926. It was considered the most advanced tuberculosis sanatorium in the country, but even then, most of its patients succumbed to the disease. There was no medicine available at that time to treat the disease, and so many patients were offered rest, fresh air, and lots of nutritious food. Sadly, the main use of the hospital was to isolate those who had come down with this disease and keep them away from those who had not. Families were tragically divided with parents and even children forced into the sanatorium with little contact with their loved ones. Treatments for tuberculosis were sometimes as bad as the disease itself. Some of the experiments that were conducted in search of a cure seem barbaric by today's standards, but others are now common practice. Patients' lungs were exposed to ultraviolet light to try and stop the spread of bacteria. This was done in sunrooms, using artificial light in place of sunlight, or on the roof or open porches of the hospital. Since fresh air was also thought to be a possible cure, patients were often placed in front of huge windows or out on open porches, no matter what the season was. Old photographs show patients lounging in chairs, taking in the fresh air while literally covered in snow. Other treatments were less pleasant and much bloodier. Balloons would be surgically implanted into the lungs and then filled with air to expand them. Needless to say, this often had disastrous results. As did an operation where muscles and ribs were removed from the patient's chest to allow the lungs to expand further and let in more oxygen. This blood-soaked procedure was seen as a last resort, and many patients didn't survive it. While the patients who survived both disease and the treatment left Waverly Hills through the front door, many others left through what came to be known as the body chute. This enclosed tunnel for the dead led from the hospital to the railroad tracks at the bottom of the hill. Using a motorized rail and cable system, the bodies were lowered in secret to the waiting trains. This was done so that patients would not see how many were leaving the hospital as corpses. Their mental health, the doctors believed, was just as important as their physical health. There are many inaccurate reports as to how many people died during Waverly Hills' decades of operation. Some claim that tens of thousands died within the walls of the hospital, but this number is greatly exaggerated. According to Dr. J. Frank Stewart, a former assistant medical director at the hospital, the highest number of deaths to occur at Waverly Hills in a single year was 152. By 1955, those numbers had dropped to as low as 42 deaths, and it has been estimated based on death certificates that were filed, that approximately 6,000 people died there, dating all the way back to the original hospital records from 1911. While far short of the numbers being tossed around in the legends, it's still a tremendous number of deaths to have occurred in a single structure. By the late 1930s, tuberculosis had begun to decline around the world, and by 1943, new medicines had largely eradicated it in the United States. A small jump in new cases did occur after World War II, 
and many soldiers returning from the war were housed at Waverly Hills. Dr. Stewart noted in his autobiography that many of the soldiers had cases that were so advanced that they did not live for more than a week after arriving at the hospital. In 1961, Waverly Hills was closed down, but was reopened a year later as Woodhaven Geriatric Sanitarium. There have been many rumors and stories told about patient mistreatment and unusual experiments during the years that the building was used as an old age home. Some of them have been proven to be false, but others have unfortunately turned out to be true. Electroshock therapy, which was considered to be highly effective in those days, was widely used for a variety of ailments. Budget cuts in the 60s and 70s led to both horrible conditions and patient mistreatments, and in 1982, the state closed the facility down for good. Is it any wonder that after all of the death, pain, and agony within these walls, that Waverly Hills is considered to be one of the most haunted places in the country? The buildings and land were auctioned off and changed hands many times over the course of the next two decades. In 1983, a developer purchased the property with plans to turn it into a minimum security prison for the state of Kentucky. Plans were dropped after neighbors protested, and a new idea to turn the former hospital into apartments was devised. A lack of financing caused this plan to be abandoned as well. In March of 1996, Waverly Hills and the surrounding land was bought by Robert Alberhaski, who ran the Christ the Redeemer Foundation Incorporated. He had plans to construct the world's tallest statue of Jesus on the Waverly site, along with an art and worship center. The statue, which was inspired by the famed Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro, was to be situated on the roof of the hospital at a cost of about $4 million. The next phase of his plan was to convert the sanitarium into a chapel, theater, and gift shop for another $8 million. Not surprisingly, donations to the project fell short of what was expected. During the first year, only $3,000 was raised, and the project was canceled in December of 1997. Albert Haskey abandoned the Waverly Hills property and then, in order to recoup some of his costs, tried to have the property condemned so that the buildings could be torn down and redeveloped. This plan was blocked by the county, and according to rumor, demolition work was then done around the southern edge of the building in order to undermine the structural foundations and collect insurance money. This scheme also failed, and in 2001, Waverly Hills was sold to Charlie and Tina Mattingly, the current owners of the property. By 2001, the once stately building had been nearly destroyed by time, the elements and vandals who came here looking for a thrill. Waverly Hills had become a local haunted house, and it became a magnet for the homeless looking for shelter and teenagers who broke in looking for ghosts. The hospital soon gained a reputation of being haunted, and stories began to circulate of resident ghosts like the little girl who was seen running up and down the third floor solarium, the little boy who was spotted with a leather ball, the hearse that appeared in the back of the building dropping off coffins, the woman with the bleeding wrists who cried for help from others. Visitors told of slamming doors, lights in the windows as if power was still running through the building, strange sounds and eerie footsteps in empty rooms. Other legends told of a man in a white coat who was seen walking in the kitchen and the smell of cooking food that sometimes wafted through the room. The kitchen was a disaster, a ruin of broken windows, fallen plaster, broken tables and chairs, and puddles of water and debris that resulted from the leaking roof. The cafeteria had not fared much better either. Even so, a number of people had reported footsteps in the room, a door swinging shut under its own power, and the smell of fresh-baked bread in the air. Perhaps the greatest and most controversial legend of Waverly Hills was connected to the fifth floor of the building. 
This floor of the old hospital consisted of two nurses' stations, a pantry, a linen room, medicine room, and two medium-sized rooms on both sides of the nurses' station. One of these, room 502, is the subject of many rumors and legends, and just about every curiosity seeker had broken into Waverly Hills over the years wanted to see it. This is where, according to the stories, people have seen shapes moving in the windows, have heard disembodied voices, and if the legends are to be believed, have even jumped to their deaths. There are a lot of legends about what went on in this part of the hospital, but perhaps the biggest misconception was that this was a floor used to house mentally ill tuberculosis patients. This was not the case. The patients here were not insane, nor were they confined to their rooms. They were free to move about just like patients on all the floors of the hospital. This floor, thanks to its design, allowed patients to still benefit from the fresh air and sunshine that was believed to cure, or at least extend the life of, those with the disease. It was centered in the middle of the hospital, and the two wards, extending out from the nurse's station, were glassed in on all sides and opened out to a patio-type roof. According to the stories, a nurse was found dead in room 502 in 1928. She had committed suicide by hanging herself from the light fixture. She was 29 years old at the time of her death, unmarried and pregnant. Her depression over the situation led her to take her own life. It's unknown how long she may have been hanging in this room before her body was discovered, and this would not be the only tragedy to occur in connection with room 502. In 1932, another nurse who worked in the same room jumped from the roof patio and plunged several stories to her death. No one seems to know why she would have done this, but many have speculated she may have actually been pushed over the edge. There are no records to indicate this, but rumors continue to persist. Hey there, folks. First off, let me start by saying I'm sorry. I know at the beginning of September when I put out The Raven, I said, oh, I'm going to be putting out an episode every week. Well, that was before my daughter was born. And she made a liar out of me. But her and mom are both doing great. I couldn't be happier. So, again, I apologize for you know, leading you guys on. But uh, I'm going to make it up to you guys in October. My Zach Bain story is going to conclude on Halloween with two parts releasing in October. I'm going to do something that I think is really fun, and I hope to make it an annual thing. I got so many nice messages after I read The Raven that I thought I'd take a crack at another classic. So after part five of Zach Bain, which is going to release on Monday, October 3rd, I will be reading the entire gothic horror classic, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the entire novel. A new chapter will release every day starting October 4th and will run right up to Halloween, where I will release part six and the conclusion of Zach's story. Well, the conclusion of this part of Zach's story. Dun, dun, dun. Just a reminder, if you want to give me a shout, check me out on social media. All the links will be in the show description. Actually, the Waverly Hills episode was actually sent to me by somebody in email saying, hey, why don't you check out Waverly Hills? And I did, and here it is. Also, you can find me easily on my Patreon. Over there, we're doing, uh, I'm reading War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, Discord access where I just kind of hang out and, you know, BS with people. 
and early peeks at other projects. I'd like to give a shout to my newest patrons, Deanna, Aaron, Roy, Candice, Catherine, Michelle, and Diego. Thank you guys so much for joining. Your support literally means the world to me and helps makes this show continue. Also, I'd like to let you guys know on the fun little thing that I'm doing, uh, on my other podcast, Zoning Out, where we, me and a round table of you know, writers, directors, guests, pretty much just my buddies, um, we talk about every episode of The Twilight Zone, starting from all the way from episode one and running straight through the whole series. We dissect them, we talk about what's going on, and you know, our, our memories of them. It's really fun, it's really analytical. We goof around. I'm having a blast with it. For Halloween, we wanted to do something different. So starting in October, um, October 3rd actually, we will be releasing, we did a horror movie draft where we went and drafted our five favorite horror movies in a snake draft style. The same way we talk about Twilight Zone episodes, we talk about our favorite movies. We're essentially putting together five movie teams that we want you guys to vote on. On social media, let us know who has picked the best team of horror movies this Halloween season. Episode one is our first and second picks, third pick, fourth pick, fifth pick, and on Halloween we will let everyone know who picked the winner and you know give us our honorable mentions and things like that. It's a lot of fun. So if you're interested in like horror movie reviews and just listening about a bunch of people reminisce about their childhood and some of their favorite horror movies, it's a really fun listen. It's a great hang. I am having an absolute blast with it. So that's zoning out. Check us out over there, anywhere you listen to podcasts. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record because I say it constantly, but thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, folks. You guys know I'm always diving into the dark corners of history, unearthing the stories that are sure to chill. Mastering the art of storytelling and research isn't just a passion. It's a craft. That's why I turned to Masterclass. Whether I'm analyzing historical documents or piecing together ghostly tales, Masterclass has been an invaluable resource in honing my skills. Masterclass lets you learn from over 200 of the world's best minds right at your fingertips. And the best part is it's all available for just $10 a month with an annual membership. I've been particularly captivated by the class on investigative journalism taught by Pulitzer Prize winner Bob Woodward. His insights into uncovering the truth may have transformed the way I approach each episode here. What's incredible is that 88% of members feel that Masterclass has made a positive impact on their lives. And trust me, I'm one of them. The depth of knowledge and practical tips I've gained have boosted my confidence and enriched the content that I bring to you every week. As a listener of Haunted American History, you get an exclusive 15% off an annual membership. Just visit masterclass.com slash haunted. That's masterclass.com slash haunted to save 15% on limitless learning. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So what are you going to lose? Don't wait. Join me and start transforming your passions into expertise by visiting masterclass.com slash haunted. I'll see you there. I guess the best place to start is at the beginning. Well, not the beginning begin. Not like my birth or anything like that. That would be silly. 
lot of wasted information, and I imagine most of you would stop listening fairly quickly. High school is tough, especially if you're the kind of kid who people deem odd. Once you're older, you understand that things like that don't matter, or at least that's what I'm told. But as a kid, it's all that matters, to most people. I was never bullied, but I was definitely an outcast, and I did get my fair share of comments, especially by Russell Welch, a guy who went by the self-appointed, mind you, Muscle Russell. He was more bloated than muscular, but if you said that to him, he would definitely punch you in the face. He had zero problems doing that, and made sure you knew about it. But if you avoided him, he would generally leave you alone. I made it my job to not have any dealings with this kid. That was until the day of the book. The beginning of this It was after Columbus Day weekend. We were off from school that Monday, and I drove with my parents up to visit my Aunt Beth upstate. New York, upstate New York. Warwick, to be more specific. I have to remind myself that not everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say upstate. I'm getting sidetracked. Sorry, that happens. That weekend, my aunt wanted to show me around Warwick. I was 16 now, and as my aunt put it, fun to hang with now that I'm not sucking my thumb anymore, whatever that means. We jumped in her old Volkswagen Golf, by the look of it, was only running on hopes and prayers, and headed down the ways a bit to a small town called Sugarloaf. This was a place that my aunt felt right at home. If she belonged anywhere, it was here. This hamlet of Hudson Valley was known for its lively artistic community. That was the perfect way to describe Beth. A lively artistic. Her place was full of sculptures and paintings. Whatever gallery nearby was hosting an event, that's the project she would be working on. My mom said she was the last of the hippies. My dad said she was an idiot. Not with an earshot of my mom, of course. The town was loaded with craft stores, vintage clothes, herb and candle shops, and places that carried homemade soap. There were also a few places whose signs out front said Curiosity Shop, and shop was spelt with a PPE at the end, so of course I had to go in and check it out. This place in particular offered tarot card readings, spiritual guidance, chakra and life readings. They also sold various oils, books, and little curated bags of spell kits. Each kit contained a spell candle, star holder, magic potion vial, mojo bag, and spell scroll, complete with directions, for only 20 bucks. So I grabbed the school success kit. What the hell? One in Rome. What really caught my attention was the book with Lore of Staten Island written on the spine. A book about weird things from my hometown was something I had to go home with. I bought it, glanced at it on the way back to Beth's house, and then that was it until Monday. I didn't think about the book until the ride home. Skimming through it, it was loaded with urban legends that took place on Staten Island. It was the curse of Seaview that took most of my interest. Everyone who grew up on Staten Island knew about the Seaview homes and the things that went on there. The rumors about how they killed the patients in the tunnels under the hospital and burnt the bodies down there trying to stop the spread of tuberculosis. The Satanists and devil worshippers who made the abandoned hospitals their ritual grounds. There were also some things that I never heard of. There was a whole write-up about a demon that was summoned on those grounds, and how it had fed on children and dragged them into shadows never to be seen again. That was what I found the most interesting, and couldn't wait to bring it to school to show my buddy Eric. He lived for this stuff. Plus, he was crazy enough to go with my idea of going to the hospital to have a little peek for myself. That Tuesday, Eric and I met on the breezeway after lunch. 
what we've been doing every lunch period since freshman year. I was showing him the book and we were just agreeing on the time and day to go check out some of these things when Muscle Russell came bursting through the doors behind us. Now normally this wouldn't mean anything to us. Live and let live, you know? But Russell had just come from the dean's office. He poured an entire carton of milk down the crack of some poor schmuck's ass. The kid didn't even react. He just kept eating his lunch. For his act of just plain meanness, Russell earned himself a punishment of indefinite detention. And as you can imagine, the adult wasn't happy. Eric was just getting to the part of the book that explained the details of the curse that loomed over Seaview Hospital, when Russell stormed over to us and ripped the book out of Eric's hand and threw it onto the roof of the gym. Now, that would have been it. Neither of us felt like getting punched in the face. But it just so happened that Miss Russo, the math teacher, happened to be walking out onto the breezeway and witnessed the entire thing. Russell's detention turned into a two-week suspension. His detention would be waiting for him when he got back. That was something that Russell did not want. He didn't have the best home life. And him being home for two weeks means someone has to be home with him. A minor home by himself was all the ammo his downstairs neighbor would need. She wasn't fond of Russell or his family. This really pissed off the boy and put the target on both Eric and myself. Luckily for us, it would be two weeks before Russell could have his revenge. Or so we thought. Turns out Russell heard more of our conversation than we thought and knew we were planning on checking out Seaview on Saturday afternoon. This afternoon. Earlier, Eric and I just went over our plan. We met around the corner from Seaview and couldn't wait to go in and check it out. We had to be careful. The place was surrounded by a chain-link fence topped with razor wire. There was also plywood stuck up on the front of the fence to block the view of the buildings from the street, which made for the perfect cover once you were up and over. That was part of the trick, though. Getting up and over without being seen. Sure, you could cut a hole in the wood and use a bolt cutter. That would be obvious. Someone would see the fence down and call it in. The only way to get in sneakily was down the small dead-end street that ran next to the hospital. There was this large tree whose branches grew over the fence, with its thickest one laying directly on top of it. You could climb right up and over, no problem. That is, if you can get past old Mr. Barker. People say he worked at the hospital as a groundskeeper prior to it closing in the 70s. He has nothing better to do now than just watch the old buildings and make sure no kids like us sneak in. Eric had a plan, though. The tree across the street from the Baker house sat on the side of his house. His house was on the corner, so the front door was on the main street. He mostly sat in his kitchen or bedroom window on the side of the house watching. Eric decided to order a pizza to the man's house. It was brilliant. As soon as he was distracted at the front door, we would be up and over before he had time to close the door and make his way back to the window. The plan was in motion and went off without a hitch. Or so we thought. We weren't planning on Russell to be following us over the fence and Mr. Baker seeing him climb over. Once we made it to the other side, we saw the plywood was lined with graffiti, but it was all nonsense. Shapes and symbols, just gibberish really. I took out my phone and took some pictures of the graffiti. Eric reached into his backpack and took out his flashlight and bolt cutters. Just in case any of the doors were chained up or we had to cut the padlock on the fence to make a quick getaway. We walked up to the first building, which was supposedly used as housing for the nurses, and climbed into the smash window on the first floor. The doorway was sealed up with cinder blocks. We weren't inside for five minutes. Eric had enough time to set his pack down and lean the bolt cutters against the wall next to the bag when we heard his voice. It was Russell. 
when he was calling out to us, calling us rats and saying we were dead and we were going to get what was coming to us. But that wasn't all I heard, though. I heard whispers coming from the halls around us, barely audible. No words I could clearly make out, but definitely something. We bolted up the steps and headed onto the second floor. The building was huge. Our plan was to go up and double back around him and get over the fence. He must have saw where we climbed in because he came in the same window and found Eric's cutters. We spent the next few minutes ducking into rooms trying not to hyperventilate, hoping the sound of my heart pounding out of my chest was only loud in my ears and that he couldn't hear it. Russell was screaming now about how he was going to use these cutters to snip off our fingers one by one. My first thought was to call the cops. The kid was clearly insane, but I had zero bars of service in here. Neither did Eric. These walls had to be thick with lead paint or something. A weird thing happened just then. A taste of things to come, I guess you could say. The sun was still shining in through the windows. We were on the second floor and above most of the overgrowth from the grounds outside. It was starting to go down, but still pretty bright. The shadows around us were beginning to stretch in our direction. Slowly at first, but then quicker. Russell walked past the room we were hiding in right before the shadow reached us and we decided to make our move. We were both smaller and definitely quicker than him. With a head start, we can make it down the stairs, out the window and over the fence way before him. We took the shot. We were stepping down the first few steps before he even was able to turn around and onto the branch and over the fence before he was even at the window. We crashed down to the ground right at the feet of Mr. Baker. He was not happy. We tried to catch our breath and explain that this lunatic was chasing us with bolt cutters. Before he could really let us have it, though, we heard the sound of a snipping bolt and the thud of metal hitting dirt. With that, the gate on the corner swung open and out stepped Russell. Mr. Baker's eyes went wide and he shouted at Russell, No, you've broken the seal! Just as a shadow stretched out from under him and pulled him into the ground. That's, that's the best way I can describe it. Arms came out of the shadow and pulled Russell directly into the sidewalk. Mr. Baker grabbed us by our shirt collars and hurried us into his house. Currently, he is writing on his walls in pen, chalk, and markers. Anything he has around, really. The same markings that were on the fence is what he's writing. He's repeating over and over to himself that it's not going to hold. The sun is almost down now, and the shadows are getting longer. The house lights don't seem to be helping. Eric went to the bathroom, and he hasn't come back yet. It's really quiet in there. My phone's battery's dying. I'll probably get cut off soon, so I should end this before it does. If anyone finds this phone and plays this voice memo, please. The book is on the top of the gym at Tottenville High School. There might be something in there that you could use. Something in there that can get us back. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.